Morning. Morning. Yeah, if you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to uh, Romans chapter 13. And if you've got one of those uh, handy church bookmarks, and if you don't have one, there's plenty at the back for future occasions, because you'll need also uh, to just, just, just put a little marker in uh, at the beginning of the book of Daniel. If you've got more than one bookmarker, you might even want to put one uh, in Jeremiah 29 as well. So this morning we're going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. As I've previously stated many times, Paul wrote for the purpose of preserving unity within the body. He wrote to prevent a split occurring within the fellowship between those of Jewish and Gentile origin. And he's done so firstly by reminding them in detail of the gospel that unites them, before, in chapter 12, instructing them on how they are to work this out in their everyday lives. He exhorted them to be transformed by the renewing of their minds and to regard themselves with sober judgment. They are to understand that they are members of a body in which each member is, is dependent on the other to exercise the gifts that they've received from God according to the measure of faith that he's also given them. And the relationships that exist between members are to be built on genuine love so that they will not be overcome by evil, but will overcome evil with good. Now, having instructed them how the truth of the gospel is to be outworked in the life of the church, Paul's focus of attention then shifts to consider how this will affect their lives and relationships outside the church. So Paul begins chapter 13 by considering, in particular, their attitude towards the governing authorities. And it's this issue that will be the focus of our attention attention today. So we're just going to begin now by reading chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Sorry, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear and honour to whom honour. Now, when the God, word of God repeats something, it means that God wants you to take what he has said 
very seriously. And three times the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to state that governing authorities are established by God. And three times he confirms that they are his servants. Did you notice how he also continues the theme of good and evil that we were studying in the previous chapter? As a reminder, in chapter 12, Paul emphasised that where genuine love exists, it will abhor what is evil and cleave to what is good. It will not allow itself to be overcome by evil, but rather it will come overcome evil with good. And Paul clearly states that the manner in which the governing authority functions as God's servant is by preserving and promoting what is good and by restraining and punishing evil. He also goes on to emphasise that the appropriate response that God expects from his people is for them to live as conscientious, law-abiding citizens who fulfil their civic duty and who show due honour and respect to those who govern them. Now, it's often a temptation for us to instantly apply what we have read to our own situation. But before we do so, it's important that we first consider what Paul has said in its original context. Now, it's clear from what Paul has written that he's made a general statement that can apply to all governing authorities at any time in history. However, it must not be overlooked that uppermost in Paul's mind must have been the ruling authorities that existed at the time of writing. To stress the point I'm making, Paul was referring to the ruling authorities of the Roman Empire and, therefore, the Roman emperor reigning at the time. Now, if you know your Roman history, we're talking about the year AD 57. You will no doubt be aware that this was during the early years of the reign of a young man by the name of Nero. Consequently, this raises inevitable serious questions. See, we know from our experience of history and also from the word of God, that governing, governing authorities do not always live up to the calling of promoting good and punishing evil. Sometimes the reverse is clearly evident. So what Paul has written is not necessarily invariably true in all cases. You see, if we go to the last book in our Bible and we read through Revelation chapter 13, governing authorities are portrayed in a somewhat different light. Rather than acting as God's servant to be obeyed, the state is seen as an instrument of Satan to be resisted. So how do we respond? How do we know when a government is behaving as God's servant? And at what point do we begin to recognise that the government as an instrument of Satan? What test do we apply? What criteria do we look for? Now, if we apply a modern way of thinking, one test we might apply is the test of legitimacy. Today, we tend to regard, uh, we tend to judge the legitimacy of a state by considering how that government came into office. We tend to regard democratic governments appointed through free and fair elections as legitimate. In the past, monarchies, too, were largely accepted and although, although genuine monarchies exercising power do not, uh, are, not, are far less common today. However, if we apply this test to the reigning emperor when Paul wrote to the Romans, we find that this particular emperor attained his office through the murderous deception of his mother. 
She married the previous emperor with the intention of persuading him to name her own son as his successor in preference to his own. And being a weak and insecure man, he agreed. And when this became legally recognised, she poisoned him. Now this was not untypical of Roman government at that time. See, Claudius, the emperor just mentioned, the one who was poisoned, he was merely a puppet of powerful men ruling in the Senate. And he only became emperor when his predecessor, on account of his disturbing and erratic conduct, was assassinated. So the manner in which a ruler was appointed to office does not appear to disqualify a government fulfilling its role as God's servant. Well, what about social justice then? At that time, the Roman Empire extended from Britain in the north, right through Europe into North Africa to the south, and eastwards across into the Middle East and Turkey. And 85% of its population were slaves. And you might well ask, why such a high proportion? Well, the Roman Empire was an empire of conquest. And when a town, city or people group were taken over, its people were sold into slavery. Now, your prospects as a slave were rather better if you were skilled or well-educated. Builders, farmers, people with knowledge and skills in medicine, law, civic administration, etc., were far more likely to fetch a higher price in the slave market. Their skills would have been highly prized by the empire in general and their owners in particular. And it would have been very much in the interest of a slave owner to look after these people since they would have been very useful in maintaining and progressing their own prosperity. So these slaves, in all likelihood, could expect to enjoy a reasonable lifestyle. However, they would have to suffer the indignity of living without the freedom to either start a family or have any existing family to live with them without their owner's permission. The prospects for the unskilled and uneducated were far less promising, though. The Roman Empire was characterised by extensive building projects. It was a town and city-based civilization with an extensive road network. And all of this would require vast quantities of building stone and metals like iron, copper and tin. So a large, force was requ- a large workforce was required to, uh, to work in the many quarries and mines needed to supply all these materials. And you've probably worked out that this very hard, physically demanding and dangerous work became the lot of those slaves. And the Romans were very hard taskmasters. Uh, uh, and those seen not to be working hard enough were very harshly punished. So becoming ill or injured, which was very highly likely in those working conditions, was extremely serious. And they weren't too fussed about health and safety regulations in those days. Hard hats may well have been standard issue for Roman soldiers, but they were unlikely to be found protecting the heads of slaves working in mines and quarries. And the water running through those mine shafts would have been full of toxic metals. So illnesses and injuries would have been commonplace. And those suffering were unlikely to be shown any compassion and more than likely simply left to die. So social justice was not a particular feature of Roman society, and yet does not seem to have been a determinant factor that excludes their governing authorities functioning as God's servant. Well, what about the spiritual and moral state of the people? Surely this would be an indicator that the state was ruling as God's servant. Well, as Paul makes abundantly clear back in chapter 1, 
First century Roman society was characterised by flagrant idolatry and immorality. He describes them as suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness and declares that God has given them over to a debased mind and describes their hearts as being filled with deceit, envy and wickedness. So do you see the issue? How do you know if a governing authority is functioning as God's servant? Where do you draw the line? Now, one thing needs to be made clear. God never called Rome to reflect his character and to be a witness of him to the nations. So we should not expect to see Rome fully living up to God's standards. God called Israel for that purpose. And the standards that he expected from them can be clearly seen by reading the books of Moses or the prophets. However, Paul stated in verses 3 to 5 that the state's purpose is to promote and encourage what is good and to restrain and punish evil. Now, all of mankind was created in God's image. And despite our fallen nature, all mankind has retained in their conscience a basic sense of what is right and what is wrong. And even though people may well have suppressed their consciences in many ways, they still have an awareness that there are moral absolutes that should be adhered to. So I believe that even in Roman society, as morally corrupt as it undoubtedly was, for all its faults, there was, at least in a very basic and imperfect sense, a compliance with this understanding of good and evil that did not disqualify their rulers from being considered God's servants. Now, we need to, to explore this a little further. Let me dig a little bit deeper. Given the moral state of their hearts, as described in Romans chapter 1, you might expect Roman society to be chaotic and unruly. However, it was anything but... It was a well-structured and orderly society with a strict rule of law. It was a hard-working, industrious society, and with good reason. Its rulers well understood the dangers of coup or revolution. And realising the truth of the saying that the devil makes work for idle hands, it was in their interest to keep the people busy, particularly military commanders with ambitions of seizing power. And to make this less likely, a general could not retain command of a particular section of the army for more than four years, so that the soldiers did not become so loyally attached to that general that they would support an attempt to seize power. Roman economics was heavily dependent on trade. Therefore, the Senate had to ensure certain minimum trading standards were enforced and strictly adhered to. And most of this trade took place in dedicated marketplaces known as forums, in the town and city centres. Also, the authorities had to ensure that goods could be safely and speedily transported into these towns and cities. So the maintenance and development of an extensive road network became very much a priority. It also provided the means of keeping the army busy when it was not at war. The roads were divided up into short sections and a curator was appointed and was responsible for the upkeep of each section. And these curators were assigned a small garrison of soldiers who would make any any necessary repairs, but more importantly, they would serve as a means of policing the road, ensuring safe travel. Now, you may be wondering how this all relates to Romans 13. 
You see, in chapter 13, Paul makes it abundantly clear to his readers that in Roman society at the time, for all its faults, was still a place where Christian people could grow and prosper if they set their minds on being good citizens, treating those in authority with all due respect, and by fulfilling their civic duties, such as in the paying of tax. There was little or nothing to fear if they set their minds on doing what they knew to be right and disassociating themselves from evil and rebellion. Not only could they they flourish as individuals, but also it was a society in which the church could grow and prosper. Now, the fact that Paul was writing to Romans makes that self-evident. And when you read through Romans chapter 16, you get the impression that the church was attended by a substantially large number of people. And we also know that a large proportion of these were Gentile converts. Where had they come from? Where did they first get to hear the gospel? Well, the marketplaces or forums, as the name suggests, were not just centres of commerce. They were also places where people could meet and gather to discuss politics, philosophy and religion. At that time, there was freedom of religion. So it seems highly likely that these forums were idle places for evangelists to preach and proclaim the gospel. And it's most likely that the Gentile converts, or at least most of them, heard the gospel there. And as for the roads that I've mentioned once or twice, they provided an efficient and relatively safe means for ministers of the gospel, like Paul, Peter, Apollos, etc., to travel throughout the empire. So hopefully you can begin to see for how, for all its many faults and imperfections, how the authorities in Rome in the AD 40s and the AD 50s could be described as God's servant. Now you may ask, well, with all that idolatry and immorality abounding, where does one draw the line? At what point does the governing authority cease to be a servant of God to be obeyed and become an instrument of Satan to be resisted? Well, let's just use idolatry as an example. Although it was permitted at that time, it wasn't commanded. It wasn't compulsory. And I believe this gives us a starting point in discerning where we draw the line. See, governing authorities can potentially cease to be God's servants and become instruments of Satan when they begin to exalt themselves to a position where they believe that they can redefine morality. Serious problems begin when they begin to decide what is right and wrong themselves. And this becomes evident in two ways. When they command what God has forbidden and forbid what God has commanded. And as believers, we need to be able to clearly discern when this is the case and how and with what attitude we need to respond. Mercifully, God has included many examples in both the Old and the New Testament which we can draw upon to study, learn and prepare ourselves to exercise appropriate discernment and teach us how to respond accordingly. Now, the particular one I, example I've chosen to study this morning to focus our attention on is probably the nearest equivalent to the situation Paul was addressing in first century Rome. And I'm thinking of the Judean exile in Babylon during the 6th century BC. 
You see, in Daniel chapter 2, where we read about the vision of the giant statue God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, what we see is the empires of Babylon and the empires of Rome were different parts of the same body. So we should expect to find many parallels when comparing the two. So you might just want to just turn sort of in that direction in your Bibles and just have Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel ready, but we are going to have to read for, we're going to read from the book of Jeremiah as well. So just, 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 just have that ready. Now, as I explained earlier, the God never chose the Roman Empire to reflect his character. However, he did choose Judah to be a living witness to him and to reveal his character through observance of the law. But for decades before, decades before they were taken into exile, they had willfully neglected to do so. And the punishment for their disobedience was that they had forfeited their right to live in the land that God had given them for a period of 70 years. Now, God hadn't finished with them. He was going to discipline them. So God raised up the king of Babylon, to be his instrument of discipline. Now, he was viewed by them as an enemy intended, intending to crush and destroy them, when in fact he was God's servant who would be instrumental in their preservation. God caused them to be taken into captivity in order that they recognise how much they had sinned against him and to give them time and opportunity to repent, turn back to him and to learn what it means become faithful witnesses to him once more. Only after 70 years would they return to the land. And given that it would be 70 years, very few who were taken into exile would return. See, rather it would be their children or or rather their grandchildren who would return. And therefore they would also have to learn the importance of passing on their faith as a witness to the next generation. Now, to bring this to their attention, so they were fully aware of this, the prophet Jeremiah, so we're going to Jeremiah 29 first, the prophet Jeremiah wrote them this letter that we have in chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah. Now, I'm not going to read the whole lot. I'm just going to read uh, short sections. Um, But let's just begin, we're going to read between Jeremiah, between uh, 1 to 13, but I'm I'm not going to read every little bit. I'm going to just, just pick out some highlights. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now we go to the content of the letter, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. 
and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for its pe- for in its peace you will have peace. And now we're just going to move on to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word to you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So do you see the parallels between the situation in Babylon and first century Rome? Rome and Babylon were both empires built on conquests. They were both pagan societies full of idolatry and immorality. And they, had both, they both had pagan rulers who God had chosen to use, his servant, uh, to use as his servants to accomplish his purposes. In each case, God inspired a godly man to write to his people to encourage them to cooperate and contribute to the societies that they lived in seeking their good. And in both cases, God's people would have to learn how to live in active cooperation in an ungodly society without denying or compromising their faith in God. They both needed to learn where to draw the line. Now, although Nebuchadnezzar was to be God's servant, we need to realise that he was a sinful man with a fallen nature. And he had that tendency within himself, just as Adam did in the Garden of Eden, to exhort himself and exceed the boundaries that God had set for him. And as a man with a fallen, sinful nature, God's servant had the potential to become an instrument of Satan for destruction. However, God was in control. Now that does not mean that God controlled him like some inanimate robot. And as one reads through the book of Daniel, one can see how God was in control of the whole situation without ever compromising personal free will. Now, we're going to just read through the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. Not all of it, we're just going to focus in on some bits that are pertinent to our study and I will make a few comments as we do so. So we're going to, be, we're going to read Daniel 1... Uh, uh, verses 1 to 8. I'm going to leave out verse 2, but uh, you'll just follow as, as I read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants And some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily portion of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time 
they might serve before the king. Now among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested to the chief of the the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, did you notice another parallel between Babylon and Rome? They both recognised the importance of using skilled and well-educated people from among the nations they captured for the benefit of their respective societies. Daniel and his three companions, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, were taken into the king's palace for a three-year degree course in Babylonian culture in order to prepare them to serve the king in the royal palace. However, for Daniel and his three companions, there was a sticking point. And Daniel had reason to believe that eating the king's delicacies would defile him and therefore compromise his faith. Many have suggested that this was because the food offered was forbidden by the law of Moses. And this may well have been the case, but the text doesn't actually say that. The text does tell us that Daniel purposed in his heart. It means that he gave very careful thought and attention to, and no doubt after much prayer, before reaching this decision. And the text also draws attention to the fact that the food was appointed them by the king. Now Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And in so doing, he was reminding them who was the source of their daily bread and to whom thanks was due. So what was the king training them to believe? So who was the king training them to believe was the source of their daily bread? Now whatever the actual reason was precisely, one thing is abundantly clear. Daniel understood that eating this food represented a a compromise of faith that he was not prepared to make. It was a line that he would not cross. And as well as understanding when to draw the line and when to make a stand, we also need to be made aware of the, ma- of the manner and conduct with which we make that stand. And as we just read the next section, I want you to pay careful attention to the attitude that Daniel showed when raising the matter with Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs. We're just going to read through verses 9 to 16. Now God had brought Daniel into the favour and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel... I fear, my lord, the king, who has appointed for you food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. 
And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. You see, Daniel raised the issue with the utmost respect and courtesy. Realising that he was not only risking his own life, but also that of Ashpenaz as well, he tactfully made his appeal to be given the trial by result, and he did so with humility and gentleness. Daniel's faith was unswerving. He trusted God to bring them all safely through, and God honoured that stand that they took by giving them healthier appearance than the other students. And one other very important thing I think we ought to realise is this. Although they took a stand for God on this issue, which potentially could have cost them their lives, there is no indication in the text that this became public knowledge at that time or in the years that immediately followed. You see, not all stands of this type need to be widely known about. However, there are occasions when they do. And in time, Daniel and his companions would have to make a very public stand on account of their faith. Now, although chapter 1 merely hints at the tendency within Nebuchadnezzar to exalt himself to an authority and status beyond what was rightfully his, the outworking events of events as they're described in chapters 2 through 4 confirm this. And if Nebuchadnezzar was to function as God's servant for good, he would need to be aware that there is a God in heaven who was the source of his authority. And he also needed to understand that God was the source of the wisdom that he needed to govern his empire wisely. Now God had resolved to make him consciously aware of these facts by communicating this to him through his prophet Daniel. However, Nebuchadnezzar was not yet ready to receive that message. He was not yet ready to accept this as a reality. He first needed to be humbled. So God would need to prepare him by speaking into his subconscious through his dreams. Now, without going into the detail of his dreams, one thing that Nebuchadnezzar clearly came to realise as a consequence of them was that although he was an immensely powerful ruler, he was not all-powerful. Although he had control over many things, he could not control everything. And he realised that there was a power beyond the physical realm which could not only control events in the present, but also those of the future too. And this troubled him greatly, so much so that he could not sleep. And this acute anxiety was due to the fact that he'd come to realise that he was not in complete control of his own circumstances. Also, having realised that there was a controlling power in the spiritual realm, he was very concerned to find out who or what that power was. And to his great annoyance, he also realised that those magicians, astrologers and other advisers he employed to give him answers to these sorts of questions didn't know either. And what annoyed him even more was that he knew that they were prepared to lie in order to deceive him into thinking that they did. Now just as God had had to prepare Nebuchadnezzar to hear that message, he also had to prepare Daniel to deliver it. 
And when Daniel realised the angry king's intention to put to death all the so-called wise men of Babylon, he knew that he needed to act. He also knew that he did not possess within himself either the wisdom or the ability to resolve the crisis. However, he did know what to do. Having requested time from the king to seek the interpretation, he called an urgent prayer meeting. And gathering with his three loyal companions, they sought the Lord for an answer. Let's just see how they prayed in uh, verses 17 through to to 19. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went into his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Note the manner in which they prayed. They did not seek the answer as a matter of right or entitlement. No, they humbled themselves, appealing to God's mercy. And God graciously answered, thus equipping Daniel for the task he needed to perform. It kind of reminds me what David McKellar was teaching us the other week. Where he guides, he provides. Where he leads, he feeds. Daniel had now been thoroughly prepared and enabled to approach the king confidently, and this he duly did with humility. Now, we tend to think of confidence and humility are mutually exclusive. They're not. They're entirely compatible. They go together without contradiction. You see, humility is not about falsely exhorting someone through flattery nor is it professing a grovelling false modesty. Humility is about having a true appreciation of yourself and the situation you are in. It's about facing facts and accepting reality. So when Daniel addressed Nebuchadnezzar as king of kings in verse 37, notice he said a king of kings, not the king of kings. As a, he was a king of kings. Other kings were subject to him. So he was stating a fact and recognizing the office to which he'd been called and he was honoring accordingly. That's precisely what Paul instructed back in Romans chapter 13. Render to all his due. Honor to whom honor is due. But he was also making Nebuchadnezzar face facts too by telling him that his power and authority were given to him by God. Also in verse 37 he says, For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength and glory. He was also drawing Nebuchadnezzar's attention to the reality that the God who was the source of his authority and power was also the source of revelation and wisdom which he needed to successfully rule his kingdom. He was making it plain that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that he was dependent on God. And these truths were confirmed by the fact that Daniel could not only reveal both the content of his dream 
but also the correct interpretation of it. And Nebuchadnezzar's reaction revealed that he willingly accepted what Daniel revealed to him. Let's just have a look at at that reaction. Verses 46 through to the end of the chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now some have suggested that verse 46 tells us that Daniel accepted worship from Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read it in isolation, it does appear to say that. Yet verse 47 clearly states that his worship was rightly directed towards God. Now it may be, as an explanation, that in his relief and excitement, Nebuchadnezzar did bow down to Daniel. However, something clearly happened between verses 46 and 47 to correct that. Maybe Daniel said something, maybe Daniel did something. But my guess is that Nebuchadnezzar recalled what Daniel had clearly said to him way back in verse 30. Daniel clearly stated that the revelation that he was about to give to Nebuchadnezzar did not come from any natural wisdom of his own, but it was first given to Daniel by the God of heaven. One thing is sure from what we are told of Daniel is that he most certainly would not have accepted worship. So Nebuchadnezzar clearly understood and willingly accepted the fact that his power and authority were given to him by God and that he was in need of God's wisdom to run the empire. And he confirmed this by appointing Daniel as ruler over the whole province of Babylon and agreed to Daniel's request that his three loyal companions also be appointed to high office to assist him. See, one of the great things that this book shows us is is something of how God works behind the scenes on behalf of his people. It reveals how God exercised control over Nebuchadnezzar, not by controlling every action and decision as if he was some inanimate robot. No, he did so by first humbling him, bringing him to the point where he could accept and face reality, And God exercised control over him only with his reasoned and willing compliance. Now, it would be natural to assume that all would now run smoothly. But Nebuchadnezzar was still free to disobey God. And we should should therefore not expect all of his future actions and decisions to have met with God's approval. Although Nebuchadnezzar had learned a valuable lesson... This did not represent a complete conversion of hearts. As we read on to the events described in chapter 3, we get the distinct impression that a few years had passed between the events of chapter 3 and and chapter 2. And in the interim, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar had not taken the opportunities that God had given him. It appears that he neglected to seek God concerning the affairs of state and did not appear to regularly consult the godly men that God had provided for him. 
And no doubt, burdened by the uh, by, burdened by those uh, affairs of state, Nebuchadnezzar once more resorted to exhorting himself by commanding what God had forbidden. And he ordered that a large golden statue be made and for his subjects to bow down and worship it when music played. Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego refused to comply. Although they had fully contributed to the welfare and progress of Babylon, they'd done so through diligent study of students and later in life as dedicated public servants in government, but this represented a line that they would not cross. They were willing to lay down their lives rather than offending God by worshipping an idol. And this infuriated Nebuchadnezzar, and he ordered that they be thrown into the fiery furnace. You see, he knew that if he did not deal harshly with this defiance of his authority, others would perceive this as a weakness and may be tempted to plot against him. So in his fury, he ordered that the furnace be made seven times hotter than normal. It was so hot that to get close to it could kill a man. However, the flame did not consume them. What was intended to be a painful and torturous end for these three godly men turned out to be a pleasant time of fellowship in the personal presence of the Lord. You see, God had once again dealt graciously with Nebuchadnezzar. He had first spoken to his subconscious in dreams. He then spoke to him consciously through his prophet Daniel. And now he had spoken very clearly through the most extraordinary of miracles. Yet, God would still need to deal with Nebuchadnezzar before he was fully submitted to him. And you can read about that for homework in chapter 4. Now, we've considered one of the signs to look for to indicate that the governing authority has potentially become an instrument of Satan for destruction. Now, in order to look at, very briefly, the second alternative, I want us now to return to the first century AD, but not to Rome, but to Jerusalem. So if you just very quickly turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and the events I'm about to describe, which you can read for yourself later at home, are described through chapters 3 to 5. See, in, in those chapters in the book of Acts, we read about how following the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon believers at Pentecost, how Peter and John brought healing to a man who had been lame from birth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This miracle so amazed those who saw this lame man had been restored that it gave Peter the opportunity to bear testimony to the fact that this man had been healed by faith in the name of Jesus and it opened the way for him to preach the gospel to them. <clears throat> now this attracted the unwelcome attention of rulers, elders and scribes. Peter and the other apostles refused to obey their repeated instructions and threats forbidding them to speak in the name of Jesus. And on account of the determined stand that they made, they were arrested and imprisoned. And following their miraculous release from prison, they went to the temple and continued to preach the gospel. This led them to being brought before the ruling council, 
where the high priest confronted them by asking, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And Peter and the apostles responded by declaring, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, the ruling council, including the high priests, had exalted themselves and exceeded their God-given authority by forbidding what God had commanded. Now, in bringing this all to a conclusion, I am mindful that we have not considered many of the other things that God has made known to us through chapter 13. And God willing, we will look into these things on a future occasion. Today, we focused our attention on a single but very important issue. So in closing, we need to consider how some of those principles and lessons that we've given attention to apply to us as Christians in 21st century Britain today. Firstly, we learn from his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar that although God establishes governing authorities with a view to them functioning as his servants to promote good and punish evil, It does not follow that he approves or condones all of their decisions, policies or actions. Neither is he responsible for them. He gives them opportunity to serve. And he works behind the scenes, bringing his people into positions of influence, making his wisdom and support available to them. He provides every opportunity for them to acquire and apply his wisdom so that they can administer his standards of right and wrong in the fulfilment of their duties. However, he does not impose his will upon those he has appointed to rule. He exercises his controlling influence through a leader. It's when he exercises controlling influence through a leader, it is always with their reasoned and willing cooperation. And we also need to understand that just as he can appoint leaders to office, he can also exercise the right to remove them. As Daniel prayed, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, was free to be God's servant for good, but also retained the potential to become an instrument of Satan for destruction. Now, just as this was true for Nebuchadnezzar, it was also true for the Roman Empire, who was ruling when Paul wrote this letter to Romans. Nero was given the opportunity to be God's servant, yet he also had the potential to become Satan's instrument for destruction. And history tells us that this is what he became. Earlier, I told you how he became emperor through the murderous deception of his mother. Well, this young man was soon to tire of his mother's overbearing influence, so had her killed. This was a man who was ruthless enough to kill his own mother, and indeed anyone else who stood in his way, including other close family members. And he was the emperor who unleashed the most cruel and inhumane wave of persecution against God's people. His heart and mind were so depraved that he made the brutal killing and torture of Christians a truly sick form of public entertainment. Now his actions should serve as a sober warning to us today as to how quickly situations and circumstances can change. 
and turning our thoughts back to considering how what we have learned today may apply to us in 21st century Britain, we need to recognise that like the Judean exiles and the Christians in 1st century Rome, that we too live among and are governed by people who neither know nor love God. Our society on the whole has rejected God and refused to live according to his ways. We have increasingly became become a permissive society. And we, however, need to recognise that a society that permits wickedness, immorality and, and, and idolatry, though, is not the same as one that demands it. And I do not believe that we've reached that point where our governing authorities command what God has forbidden or forbid what God has commanded. Although there are signs that things could go, go this way very quickly. Have you noticed in the recent political manoeuvrings how support for the LBGT agenda seems to be, have become a test for political orthodoxy? But we haven't reached that point yet where wickedness is commanded. Therefore, Paul's instructions given in the first half of Romans chapter 13 still very much apply to us today. God expects us to live as cooperative and contributing citizens who obey the law, fulfil our civic duties and who show due honour to those in authority. Like Daniel and his companions, we can play a significant and active role in society, working diligently and prayerfully prayerfully seeking the welfare, the peace of our nation and our government. However, also like them, we need to be mindful that situations are likely to arise which constitute a compromise to our faith and therefore present us with a line not to be crossed. Increasingly, we are hearing about the cases of Christians who are facing situations such as these. To give one example, it is becoming increasingly a taboo, though not yet a law, but it's a taboo in our society for Christians to share their faith in the public arena. So it's becoming ever more imperative that we pay careful attention to the wisdom that God has provided in his word. Through diligent study of characters like Daniel and his companions, we can learn to equip and prepare ourselves for the challenges that we are likely to face. We've read of the importance of personal and corporate prayer, and we learned of the willingness of God to give revelation to those who earnestly seek it, just as he did when Daniel and his companions gathered for prayer and appealed to him to show them mercy. We learned about the manner in which they made their stand for their faith, never brashly or arrogant, but always showing due respect and honour to those in authority, remembering that they would have no power over them unless it was given to them by God first. And we can draw great encouragement and comfort that God can deliver his people from the most desperate of circumstances, but also from the fact that he can also give his people the grace to stand firm and resolute when he, for his own good reasons, chooses not to. It's imperative that we learn these lessons and avail ourselves of all that God has provided for us in order to prepare for the stands that that we too may be required to take. And we need to purpose in our hearts to be fully prepared 
and equipped with the knowledge that God has made available to us so that we, like Daniel, know where to draw the line.